In the chronicles of American financial history, Charlie Munger will be seen as a proverbial enigma wrapped in a paradox. He is both a mystery and a contradiction at the same time. Warren Buffett said, Charlie's most important architectural feat was the design of today's Berkshire. The blueprint he gave me was simple. Forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. Instead, buy wonderful businesses at fair, buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. Consequently, Berkshire has been built to Charlie's blueprint. My role has been that of general contractor with the CEOs of Berkshire subsidiaries doing the real work as subcontractors. Now, this is a short excerpt from what I'm going to read to you today. Now, with the passing of Charlie Munger, I, I feel like it's really important to just do a simple episode on who is Charlie Munger. Even if you generally know who he is, if you studied some of his work, I still think it's a great reminder. Like in my life, he's somebody that I always want to keep fresh in my mind because he is, I think, such a powerful and potent, like well of wisdom and common sense that I think, you know, the way I think about uh, learning about people and learning about books is it's like putting these kind of mini characters on your shoulders and in your mind that I think as you're thinking through problems, as you're faced with decisions, you can turn to them and reflect on what they might do or what advice they might give you. And uh, what I'm going to read to you today is actually the beginning of the Tao of Charlie Munger, which is actually a compilation of quotes from Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman on life business and the pursuit of wealth. It's a book put together by David C. Clark. Um, and you know, in the book, he's got tons of wonderful quotes in, in his commentary on them. But I actually think the introduction is in many ways more interesting because there are many ways you can sum up Charlie Munger. I think that what the this uh, description that that uh, David Clark has written is just absolutely exceptional. So that's what we're going to read today. You can find the show notes for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash who is Charlie Munger. You can type that in all together. You can put dashes between it. It will work. Um, outlieracademy.com slash who is Charlie Munger. Okay. Let's dive in. In the chronicles of American financial history, Charlie Munger will be seen as the proverbial enigma wrapped in a paradox. He is both a mystery and a contradiction at the same time. Warren Buffett said, Charlie's important architectural feat was the design of today's Berkshire. The blueprint he gave me was simple. Forget what you know about buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. And again, this was uh, Benjamin Graham's big idea. And Charlie instead said, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. Consequently, Berkshire has been built to Charlie's blueprint. My role has been that of general contractor with the CEOs of Berkshire subsidiaries doing the real work as subcontractors. It's a powerful statement coming from Warren Buffett. That really, the, the core idea of what became Berkshire Hathaway came from Charlie. And, you know, just for a quick bit of background on this, um, I think part of this is, you know, if you go and you study Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, effectively apprenticed, learned from, um, was in class with Benjamin Graham, learning about classical value investing. And one of the things you find out, and Charlie actually, uh, in the book, there's a wonderful quote that actually talks about this. Um, but Charlie explicitly called out that Benjamin Graham has a lot of wonderful ideas and his framework for value investing was great. But it was also shaped by his most defining experience, which was living through the Great Depression and all of the pain and scar tissue he experienced as part of that. And so, you know, he's basically saying Benjamin Graham has had some great ideas, but he was maybe overly operating from a place of fear from this experience. And so Charlie's big idea here was let's just not get okay businesses at great prices. Let's go get fantastic businesses at fair prices. And, you know, knowing that that's probably going to work better and a very, uh, you know, a very easy reason to explain why that's going to work better is these businesses are more durable. 
They're going to be more durable, uh, you know, against competition. They're going to work for longer. Um, and, you know, I think there's just a, a, um, a sentiment that Charlie and Warren express a lot, which is extremely true, which is just if you zoom out for a second, the number or the percentage of truly wonderful businesses is also as close to zero as you can get. So it's not saying that it's easy. Um, it's not saying that these are common, but it's saying that that's the right goal. It's so hard to build these. It's so rare to find one. Our goal is just to find them and pay fair prices. Okay, back to the text. How is it that Charlie, who trained as a meteorologist and a lawyer and never took a single course in economics, marketing, finance, or accounting, became one of the greatest business and investing geniuses of the 20th and 21st century? Therein lies the mystery. Charlie was born in Omaha, Nebraska on January 1st, 1924, in the midst of the Roaring Twenties. The radio and airplane were the cutting-edge technologies of the day. The financier, Bernard Baruch, was the king of Wall Street, and everyone was getting rich investing in stocks. Charlie's father was one of Omaha's leading business attorneys, um, and his roster of clients included many of the state's business elite. Charlie spent much of his youth reading the television and video games of his day, and that is where he discovered a larger world than the idyllic but very parochial neighborhood of Dundee, where Warren Buffett's family also lived. The two boys attended the same grade school and high school, though seven years apart in age. It's actually interesting. I didn't, I didn't know they were that far apart. In fact, one of Charlie's first jobs was working for Warren's grandfather at the Buffett neighborhood grocery store, which is still standing in the heart of old Dundee. Charlie was introduced to the world of business at the Buffett grocery store. He learned about taking inventory, stocking shelves, pleasing customers, the importance of showing up on time for work, how to get along with others while accomplishing a joint task, and of course, running the cash register where money, the, life, uh, the lifeblood of the business, flowed. So again, just call this out. Charlie actually worked for Warren's dad, who ran a grocery store in Omaha, Nebraska, um, you know, many, many, many years before actually working with uh, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway to go and build that. Omaha in the 1930s had distinct ethnic immigrant neighborhoods, Italian, Greek, African-American, Irish, French, Czech, Russian, and even Chinese. Many immigrants worked for the Union Pacific Railroad in meatpacking plants whose operations were centered in Omaha. Charlie went to public school with the children of those immigrants and as a result, developed an appreciation not only of their cultures, but also of the commercial aptitude and willingness to work unbelievably hard to give their children a better life. Charlie often brings up the horrors of the Great Depression at Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings as a reminder of just how bad it can get. But Omaha didn't suffer like other parts of the United States during the Great Depression, in part because it was at the crossroads of two major railroads, the Union Pacific and Burlington, and also because it was home to the Union Stockyards, the second largest in the world. With this convergence of livestock and transportation, Omaha attracted the big meatpacking companies, which established processing plants in South Omaha. America may have been in a Great Depression, but it still had to eat, and as many as 20,000 pigs, sheep, and cattle arrived in Omaha every day. Those animals needed to be slaughtered, butchered, packed, and shipped to other parts of the country. The stockyard generated lots of economic activity, even during hard times. The Kiwit Construction Company, today one of North America's largest building companies, was founded in Omaha. The company's first big job was constructing the Livestock Exchange Building for the Union Stockyards. Peter Kiwit had a huge influence on both Charlie and Warren, and today's Berkshire home office is in Kiwit Plaza. Charlie learned about the business dealings of some of Omaha's most prominent businessmen from his father, who represented both the Hitchcock family, who owned the town's leading newspaper, and the Kounsey family, who owned the largest bank. After high school, 17-year-old Charlie enrolled at, uh, in the University of Michigan to study mathematics. 
He turned 19 a year after Pearl Harbor, dropped out of college, and joined the U.S. Army Air Corps. The Army sent him to Caltech in Pasadena, California, to study meteorology. There he learned the difference between cumulus and cirrus clouds and fell in love with the sunny Southern California weather. While the teenage Warren Buffett was busy learning about odds and probabilities at the Axar Bend horse, uh, horse racing track, a short bike ride from his Omaha home, Charlie Munger was learning this important investment skill while playing poker with his army buddies. That's where he learned to fold his hand when the odds were against him and bet heavily when the odds were with him, a strategy he later adapted to investing. After the war, Charlie, who did not have an undergraduate degree, applied to Harvard Law School, his father's alma mater. He was rejected after a phone call from Harvard Law's retired dean, who was a Nebraskan and family friend. He was admitted. Charlie excelled in his law studies and graduated magna cum laude. In 1948, he has never forgotten the importance of having high friends in high places. After law school, Charlie moved back to Los Angeles, where he joined a prestigious corporate law firm. He learned a lot about business from handling the affairs of 20th Century Fox, a mining operation in the Mojave Desert, and many real estate deals. During that time, he was also the director of an international harvester dealership, where he first learned how hard it is to fix a struggling business. Their dealership was a volume business that required a lot of capital to pay for its costly inventory, most of it financed with a bank loan, a couple of bad seasons, and the carrying cost on the inventory uh, start to destroy the business. But if the company cut its inventory to lower the carrying costs, it wouldn't have had anything to sell, which meant that customers would seek out a competing dealership that did have inventory. It was a tough business with lots of problems and no easy solutions. And I love this analysis. I mean, I don't know if Charlie actually, you know, grokked it uh, as he as he did in his later years. But I, I mean, I love the description because it's definitely showing a capital intensive business that's earning low return. You know, and one of my favorite Charlie quotes goes something along there's two types of businesses. There's there's a business that earns 12% a year and you can pull out profit at the end of the year. And there's a business that earns 12% a year and you have to plow it back into inventory or capital expenses or capital investments at the end of the year. And this is very clearly an example of the latter, which is not a business that Charlie or Warren like for very obvious reasons. Charlie thought a lot about business during that time. He made a habit of asking people what was the best business they knew of. He longed to join the rich elite clientele his silk stocking law firm served. He decided that each day he would devote one hour of his time. Now, this is a fascinating idea, fascinating strategy. So each day he would devote one hour of his time at the office to work on his own real estate projects. And by doing so, he completed five. He has said that the first million dollars he put together was the hardest money he ever earned. It was also during that period that he realized he would never become rich practicing law. He'd have to find something else. In the summer of 1959, while in Omaha to settle his father's estate, he met two old friends for lunch at the Omaha Club, a wood-paneled private downtown club where businessmen lunched in the afternoon and drank and smoked cigars in the evening. The two men had decided to bring along a friend of theirs who was running a partnership they had invested in and whom they thought Charlie would enjoy meeting, a young man by the name of Warren Buffett. Obviously very fortuitous. By all accounts, it was a case of instant mutual attraction. Warren started by launching into a standard diatribe about the investing genius of Benjamin Graham, Charlie knew about Graham, and immediately the two began to talk about businesses and stocks. The conversation became so intense that Char and, uh, Charlie and Warren barely noticed when their two friends got up to leave. That was the beginning of a long and very profitable relationship, a bromance in the making, and over the next couple of days, they couldn't see each other enough. One night over dinner, Charlie asked Warren if he thought it would be possible for Charlie to open an investment partnership like Warren's in California. Warren said he couldn't see any reason why not. After Charlie returned to California, 
he and Warren talked several times a week on the phone over the next couple of years. This is fascinating. This is during a period where, so before they joined forces, uh, Warren had his own private investment partnership and Charlie ends up starting his own. And, you know, they, they, so they have this kind of solo experience where they're uh, working together as kind of peers, but they obviously are taking slightly different approaches. They have different positions. Um, and it's just interesting to me. They later decide to wind these down, obviously launch something together. Um, it, just an interesting progression. Uh, in 1962, Charlie finally started an investment partnership with an old po poker buddy who was also a trader on the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange. He also started a new law firm. Munger, Tolls, Hills, and Woods. Within three years, he stopped practicing law to focus on investing full-time. Charlie's investment partnership was different from Warren's and he was willing to take on a lot of debt to do some of his trades. Different approach. He was particularly fond of stock arbitrage. One arbitrage deal involved the British Columbia Power, a company that was being taken over by the Canadian government. The takeover price was $22 a share. BCP was selling for $19 a share. Thinking that the deal would eventually go through at $22, Charlie bought up all the shares of BCP he could get his hands on and ended up putting all the partnership's money, all of his own money, and all that he could borrow into BCP. Now, you know, this is, it clearly says a lot about Charlie Munger. He's very comfortable with concentration, and he's very comfortable at this stage using leverage. Now, this is something Warren and Charlie decide ultimately is not a good idea, but it's interesting to see this progression in Charlie early on being very aggressive. You know, all of the partnership's money, all of his money, and all money he could borrow into a single position that he had a lot of conviction. The trade worked out, BCP was taken over at $22 a share, and Charlie made out like a bandit. In the mid-1960s, Charlie and Warren were busy scouring over the pink sheets, a pre-internet daily publication of the prices of over-the-counter stocks, also called OTC stocks, printed on pink paper, looking for a bargain price on a good company. One of the companies they found, and this is the start of Berkshire Hathaway, one of the companies they found was Blue Chip Stamp. Blue Chip was a trading stamp company. Other businesses would buy trading stamps from Blue Chip, give them to their customers who would then redeem them for prizes that Blue Chip was offering. Think of it as an early form of a rewards program. What made the company interesting to Charlie was that Blueprint, Blue Chip had a pool of money called Float that was created by the lag between it selling the stamps and the customers redeeming them. What made blue chip stock attractively priced was the fact that the U.S. government had filed an antitrust action against the company. Charlie, as a lawyer, thought the lawsuit would be resolved in favor of blue chip, which it was. Charlie, through his partnership and Warren, through Berkshire, eventually took control of the company and Charlie became its chairman. By the late 1970s, the float at blue chip had grown to approximately 100 million, money that Charlie and Warren could invest. Now, this is really interesting. Obviously, a core part of Charlie and Warren's strategy building Berkshire Hathaway was building up enormous amounts of float in their insurance operations. And this is a fascinating example of another company with a very different model that basically has a lag. And I don't know what that lag was. I, I would hope that it's at least 90 days. Maybe it's more like six quarters uh, or sorry, six months um, between when they sell and when a customer redeems. You know, it's kind of like a gift card business, I think, in, in, in many ways. I'm guessing some percentage of customers also never redeemed. Um, and so it's just interesting that, you know, before I think, um, maybe at this point they had realized that insurance was similar, but it's just fascinating to me that they found a business that also had this very attractive lag and mismatch between when they got money in and when money had to go out. And it, I think it's really powerful insight and it goes to show just how I think astute they are at understanding mechanically what makes a business be able to be successful. And in this case, I mean, if you're a business that can have float and you know by the late 1970s the float grown to approximately 100 million that's exceptional that's a lot of money 
Blue Chip's business model eventually became obsolete and its sales slowly declined over the years from 126 million in sales in 1970 to 1.5 million in 1990. That is, whew, that is staggering. So over 20 years to go from 126 million in sales to 1.5 million. But in its heyday, under Charlie's direction, Blue Chip used its surplus capital to purchase, this is interesting, 100% of C's candy, obviously fantastic, and 80% of a finance company called Wesco, which owned a savings and, uh, and loan bank. Just as Warren had taken out capital or had taken capital out of Berkshire's failing textile operation to buy a thriving insurance business, National Indemnity, Charlie took the excess capital out of Blue Chip Stamp and invested it in profitable businesses. Eventually, Blue Chip Stamp was merged into Berkshire Hathaway. In 1968, Charlie teamed up with Warren Davy Sandy um, Gotsman, who ran the investment firm First Manhattan to form Diversified Retailing Corporation. DRC acquired the Baltimore-based department store Hothschild Cone for $12 million. Half of the acquisition was financed with a bake loan. Hothschild Cone was bought at a bargain price, but it had no competitive advantage and was constantly having to spend precious capital keeping up with the competition. Very similar to the textile business that Berkshire Hathaway started with. I did a breakdown on um, the anxieties of business change, which is this great, um, it's from a section of one of the annual letters. I'm blanking on the exact year, but it's, I think, a fascinating example. It's when Warren Buffett had decided to exit, Warren Charlie had decided it was time to finally sell and exit this textile business, which is something they rarely ever do. Um, and all the logic for it and all of the logic was that it just made no economic sense. It was it was all the capital the business generated was kept in the business. It required enormous amounts of investment just to stay competitive. And so it's just a categorically terrible business to be in. Uh, and it sounds very similar. Charlie and others quickly learned how hard the retail clothing business really is. Unlike the jewelry or carpet business where the inventory never depreciates, in retail clothing, the entire inventory becomes obsolete with the changing of every season. After three years of dismal results, they sold um, Hostchild Cone, during that time, Charlie started seeing the advantages of investing in better businesses, didn't have big capital requirements, and did have lots of free cash flow that could be invested in expanding operations or, again, buying new businesses. It's kind of like a, a flywheel, a reciprocal loop. These business, They buy profitable businesses. They have an opportunity every single year to invest some or all of that money back in the business. And, you know, Charlie and Warren have a very high bar for that. They want to make sure that it that makes sense to do. And they're actually going to get a return on that capital and return of that capital, two different things, or they can buy new businesses. And this is the flywheel that created Berkshire over many, many, many years. From 1961 to 1969, Charlie's investment partnership showed an amazing average annual return of 37.1%. But the crash in 1973, 1974 hurt him. And when he closed the fund in 1975, it had $10 million in assets and showed an average annual rate of return of 24.3% for the 14 years it was in operation. What is interesting is that in the final years of the fund, Charlie was running a highly concentrated portfolio. The holding in Blue Chimp alone, accounting for 61%, almost two thirds of all the capital. 61% um, of the fund's investments. He has never been a fan of diversification as an investment strategy. One of the investment decisions that Charlie's partnership made in 1972 was to team up with the investor Rick Gurin uh, and take a controlling investment in a closed-in investment fund called Fund of Letters, which they quickly renamed to New America Fund. When the partnership liquidated the partners received shares in the New America Fund, uh, which Gurin ran and for which Charlie picked the investments, 
1977, New America Fund bought the Daily Journal Corporation, another, you know, fortuitous thing. Charlie ended up running the Daily Journal Corporation um, for many, many, many decades. Um, so they bought this in 1977 for $2.5 million, and Charlie became its chairman. The Daily Journal Corporation is a California publishing company that publishes newspapers and magazines, including the Los Angeles Daily Journal and the San Francisco Daily Journal. When Gurren and Charlie dissolved the New America Fund, its shareholders received shares in the Daily Journal Corporation, and the company became a publicly traded over-the-counter stock. Many of today's Daily Journal shareholders have literally been with Charlie since the days of his original investment partnership more than 40 years ago. In 1979, Charlie became Berkshire Hathaway's first vice chairman. In 1983, Blue Chip Stamp merged with Berkshire Hathaway, and Charlie took over as chairman of Wesco. It was from those two positions that Charlie would help Warren make the investment in management decisions that would take Berkshire Hathaway from a net income of $148 million and a stock price of 1272 in 1984 to net income of $24 billion and $210,000 a share in 2016. And obviously it's worth a lot more today, but that's exceptional. I have to repeat that back. 1984, net income was $148 million. In 2016, it's $24 billion. And the stock price goes from uh, $1,272 to more than $210,000. Exceptional, exceptional run. Today at 92, it's obviously written many, you know, many years ago, um, Charlie is vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, a company with a market capitalization of $362 billion, as well as the chairman of the Daily Journal Corporation and his personal fortune now exceeds $2 billion. Warren, in summing up Charlie's impact on his investment style over the last 75, sorry, 57 years, said, Charlie showed me, uh, shoved me in the direction of not just buying bargains, as Ben Graham had taught me. This was the real impact that he had on me. It took a powerful force to move me on from Graham's limiting view. It was the power of Charlie's mind. You can find the text for this. You can find links to a bunch of other stuff that I've done related to Charlie Munger. Uh, you can find the show notes at outlieracademy.com slash who is Charlie Munger. And again, what I just read, today's short read breakdown is the Tao. It's from the Tao of Charlie Munger. Uh, which is an exceptional book. And if you're, you know, I, I always just, I always kind of frame it this way. I think there's two ways to learn about Charlie Munger. Uh, you can, you know, I still think the best book, if you want to read just one, but it's intimidating, is Poor Charlie's Almanac. So if you have only one, you want to just buy one book, you want to go all in, buy Poor Charlie's Almanac. But I guarantee you, it'll take you days. Um, it'll take a lot of time to read through that book and, and really be able to grok it. Uh, but it's incredibly valuable. It's a book that I turn to all the time. And even if you, you know, it's it's composed of a number of different, um, speeches and essays that he's written, even just bookmarking the ones you like and going back once a year, I think is an incredible practice. So that's one way. I think the other way is in short form to to just take in Charlie's wit and wisdom. And you know, this book's a great way to do that. Charlie has phenomenal quotes that are witty, that are insightful, that hold together and honestly feel like a great distillation of knowledge. So I highly recommend the book, The Tao of Charlie Munger, and you can find a link to buy that book in the show notes. Thank you so much. I'll see you again soon.